Well, I'm very excited to be preaching Christmas in the Old Testament for Advent this year. Um, I've been been researching the the prophecies that are from the Old Testament that Matthew and Luke both use in their Gospels, uh, either quoting or alluding to them. And uh, I'm finding it really kind of interesting to see how these passages work. Now, now as we look at them, you're going to find them to be both familiar and strange. You're probably going to find these are passages that you've heard a bunch at, at uh, Christmas, uh, at the lighting of the Christmas, uh, of the Advent wreath and in some sermons, maybe in songs. But you're going to find that when we go to look at them in the Old Testament, they're going to seem very familiar because probably a lot of them you've never looked at the background. I mean, you, you've heard from Handel's Messiah, you've heard the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, but but you've never heard them in their original context. We need to start out understanding that these passages were written for particular times and places and situations. That doesn't mean that a passage can only say what it said to those people. I mean, we read the Bible all the time thinking it can say something to us today. But, but I'm, a, I'm a proponent, and I, I teach this in my sermons, and I model it a lot for you, in the discipline of historical context. Where the first thing I want to do is I want to look at a passage for what it meant back when it was originally written. I want to see what it was like there, and it's kind of a double check. So that I don't have some crazy interpretation of my own, I want to know what it said then first before I apply it to today. There's some history to sort of balance there. Now, now, we read a lot of Old Testament passages in the Christmas story, and, and often we have no idea of their original context. In fact, when we go to look at them, we might even wonder if the Gospel writers had any clue about the original context. I mean, it seems like their application of these to Jesus can be kind of haphazard, but, but we're going to wrestle with that over the next couple of weeks. The bigger question is, how much did these Old Testament writers uh, really know about Jesus? When Isaiah writes the passage we're going to look at today about how a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, is he picturing Jesus and Mary and Joseph in a manger? I'm going to imagine, is he imagining Bethlehem? I'm going to suggest probably not. We partly get off on the wrong track because we have a misconception about what prophets actually do. When we think of prophets, we think of predicting the future. Right, looking into the future to say what's going to happen. But actually, prophets almost never do that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 34.10, Moses is described as the greatest prophet that ever existed. Moses did no future telling. Moses didn't do that. Okay, Because what a prophet really does is a prophet is a messenger of God. A prophet delivers uh, the words of God or God's feelings and, and opinions on things to the people. So Moses is the greatest because he was face-to-face -face with God when he spoke and brought actual messages from God written down from the hand of God. So whatever your perception of what a prophet is, you need to remember that Moses is the epitome of it, right? So, so we got to get, we got to get this right. So they're, they're interpreting, not telling the future, but very often what they're doing as prophets is they're interpreting the past and they're interpreting the present Yes, with future implications, but, but they tend to be much more, this is how we got here and this is what's going on for us now. And in fact, a lot of the future telling of the prophets comes in the form of warning. Like, if you don't change your ways, this is going to happen. And so it's not really predicting, it's, it's, it's dealing with the moment now. Certainly some future telling, but not very much. 
And it's also helpful, I think, to when we read these passages, to realize that Jews read these passages and they read them very differently. And and for hundreds of years, these passages were read without a view of Jesus in mind. So I, I want us to be respectful of Jewish readings and, and understanding that there's other ways to read these passages besides what we do in the New Testament. To help us think about this, let, let's think about uh, glasses. All right? Now, what the New Testament authors do is they go back to the Old Testament with a new set of lenses, the Jesus lenses. Okay? The lens of Jesus sees these passages differently. They see Jesus foreshadow or pointed toward in the Old Testament passage. So, so part of what we're trying to ask is, what did these passages mean before they were read with the Jesus lens? And how can understanding their original context help us to, to see them, to see Jesus in them. Keeping with this idea of glasses, um, I, I uh, read this book uh, preparing for this sermon series called Unto Us, A Child is Born, Isaiah, Advent, and Our Jewish Neighbors. He uses the idea of glasses to talk about bifocals. Now, I don't have bifocals, but, but I, my dad does, and I remember when he got them. In bifocals, you have part of the lens that's for farsighted, and part of the lens that's for nearsighted. And, and what you have to do if you have bifocals, you have to learn sort of where to look. And I remember for a couple weeks after my dad got bifocals, he was always doing this, you know, and trying to figure out what part of the lens that he was supposed to be looking through. Okay, because there's farsighted and there's nearsighted. And, and so what we need to do when we read these Old Testament passages is we need to read them through different focal points. Okay, we look at it farsighted when we look at what Isaiah originally said. And then we look at them nearsighted when we read these passages in the Christmas story and uh, read what Matthew and Luke are doing with them. And maybe it's even trifocals because we also are reading these passages very close, as in microscopic looking right now at, at what we're going through. So, so you have to be able to farsight and nearsight. And eventually my dad got good at being able to switch back and forth. And, and that's what good Bible readers actually do. Good Bible teachers are able to go back and forth from far away to here, from Isaiah's world to Matthew and Luke's world, and then to our world. And so now with the Jesus lens, now with this bifocal perspective, let's go back and look at a particular example of this. And we're, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 7. You will know one verse of this. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's quoted in Matthew one twenty three about Mary's virgin conception. But let me read this whole section. Actually, it's not the whole section, but I'm going to read Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from your Lord. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahad said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men uh, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring you upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. 
the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first off, what you realize is that you've heard this verse, but you have probably never heard this entire passage. And this verse actually comes in a conversation, in a story that you're not familiar with. So, so let's go back and try to pick up this story, fill in some of the gaps of history. The events of this passage take part early in the book of Isaiah, which means it's some of the older parts, and in what call, scholars call the Syro-Ephraimite War. From 734 BCE to 732 BCE, the northern kingdom of Israel joined with the army, arm, uh, let me get it right, Aramean city-state of Damascus, which I'm just going to call Damascus here. Okay, so Israel is divided, and the northern part, Israel, joins forces with Damascus against this empire of Assyria. But Judah's king Ahaz thinks this is a foolish endeavor, that they're never going to be able to stand against Assyria, and so he actually has, um, he actually become leads Judah to become a vassal state, a state that owes its allegiance to Assyria. In response, uh, Damascus and Israel start looking to, to attack Judah to take over so that they would gain strength in fighting the Assyrians. Now, the, the, the prophets, Isaiah, does not like Ahaz's decision. And so God tells Isaiah in the beginning of Isaiah 7 to meet with Ahaz. Isaiah encourages him not to be afraid not, and to let his heart grow faint, or not to let his heart grow faint. Judah should rely on God and not her military alliance with Assyria. And if Ahaz will not stand firm in faith, then he will not stand at all. When the king is not convinced, Isaiah offers Ahaz a chance to ask for a sign from God. In other words, ask whatever you want. Ask God for a miraculous sign. Ask God for him to, to prove that his words are true. But Ahaz will not put his Lord to the test. So Isaiah says, fine, the Lord's going to just give you a sign. A young woman is going to be pregnant and is going to have a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means, Matthew reminds us, God with us. And before the child is old enough to choose between good and evil, the land whose two kings you dread will be gone. In other words, Isaiah and Damascus are going to be gone before this child is even old enough to choose good and evil. Notice that I said young woman in my interpretation, my telling, not virgin. The Hebrew word here is alma, and it, it means just young woman. It, it doesn't mean virgin. In those days, the assumption was if you were a young woman, you were a virgin. Um, but some young women were actually married. You could be married as a young woman. When the Hebrew gets translated into the Greek called the Septuagint, the word is translated into parthenos, which is the word for virgin. Now, you actually know this word probably because there is the, the virgin god Athena, and in Athens, the temple to Athena is called the Parthenon, okay, the temple to the virgin. So Matthew is reading the Septuagint. Paul probably is as well, reading more out of the Greek Old Testament. And he sees this word virgin, and uh, um, connects it with Mary's story. And in fact, really, what, what, if, you, if you pay attention to how Matthew uses it, it's really not about the virgin birth as much as the sign. And what is the real sign in the story? The real sign is the child's name. The question we must ask is, is who is this child whose name is a sign from God? 
Well, it, it could be Isaiah's child. Isaiah actually has another son that's named out of uh, in a miraculous way. This is common for the prophets to do. Hosea does it, for example, as well. Um, but the title Emmanuel is used again in Isaiah, suggesting it's a real person, suggesting that it may be a royal title. In fact, it's probably Ahaz's own son that Isaiah is referring to. The king had a son right about this time whose name was Hezekiah. And in Hezekiah's life, it's true. The, 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 uh, kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel is basically destroyed. A lot of them are pulled in exile. This kingdom in Damascus is no more. And actually, the Assyrians then start pushing down on Judah, getting ready to attack Judah. So when Hezekiah is the king, he builds up the city, he builds up water, waterways, and builds up walls. But then the night before the Assyrians are about to attack, the text says an angel comes through and uh, makes the, a bunch of the Assyrians sick, and they end up leaving without destroying uh, the temple. It's not till the Babylonians come that Judah and Jerusalem are destroyed. Now, if you know this backstory, then you understand why the prophecy from Isaiah makes sense. That he says, you know, you're going to have a son and the, these, two these two people against you are going to go away. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Then why is Matthew connecting this passage to uh, Jesus? I mean, Isaiah has lots of passages that have to do with the coming Messiah. We'll look at more of those next week. This one's not even talking about a coming Messiah. It's really talking about Hezekiah. So what, what do we do with this? Does Matthew use this passage correctly? Well, let me say first, if I was doing a paper in seminary and I used this passage to talk about Jesus without Matthew, I would have gotten an F. Okay, It's not real direct exegesis. Then again, who am I to tell Matthew what he can and can't do? Who am I to say that there isn't another level of meaning? And in fact, I think Matthew has the right, looking through the Jesus lens, okay, inspired by the Holy Spirit to go back and see something in this story to say, no, that this is a this this is a sign. And in fact, I think Matthew has more in mind than just a virgin conception here. Okay? I think Matthew has the whole story in mind. After all, Matthew's people didn't read with verse numbers the way we do, they read stories. Okay, we have versitis, my, my professor calls it, versitis. We like to read verses. We like to read scriptures as in little chunks that fit on coffee mugs. But, but those verses came much later. No, no, in Matthew's days, they would have known the whole story. And so here's what I think Matthew is actually saying. More than just a virgin birth. I'm, he's saying, you remember how Isaiah promised a sign when they were in trouble, a savior that was going to come, a proof that God was really with us. Well, let me tell you, that sign has nothing compared to this sign. The God with us, man, God is really with us, and God is really going to save us. And even though Jerusalem did eventually fall after this last, this last Hezekiah, this last Emmanuel, this Emmanuel is going to be so much bigger See, Matthew, I, I think, is looking back at this, not as a prophecy about Jesus, like a future telling that then comes true, but he's saying, you know, the heart of the story, okay, the, the typology, the, uh, the way, the, the, the one that is like Hezekiah has come and it's even more. So that the fulfillment of Jesus isn't a pro prophecy that's fulfilled, but it is, in fact, 
uh, a fulfillment of a bigger idea, a bigger concept. And what's the sign? The sign is that God is with us. God is with us. Jesus is the, the ultimate typology of how God shows that he's with us. Over the next few weeks, we'll unpack some more of these passages, particularly, we're paying particular attention to Isaiah here. Next week, we'll look at the idea of the Messiah, what that even means. Then in week three, we're going to look at the forerunner, the Elijah figure, John the Baptist. And then in my fourth sermon in this series, we'll take a look at all the passages in the Christmas story, sort of one by one, and and look back at their original meeting. And we'll try to learn how to use this bifocal Jesus lens to look back at these passages, understand what they originally meant, and then look at how the gospel writers bring them forward. But here's your message for today. Is that the sign that God is with us with Hezekiah. And the sign of Emmanuel that God is with us in Jesus is yours today too. God is with you. God is with you. You may think you are overwhelmed by so much, but God is with you. Salvation is coming. New days are ahead. God is with you. Let that be your reminder as we begin our journey of Advent.